In today's church culture, someone's conversion is surrounded by certain expectations. Conversion is often understood as a personal decision for Christ that happens at a church altar or maybe an outreach event. And when that decision is memorialized by some rendition of the sinner's prayer, then it's considered official. But what if our modern understanding of conversion isn't at all like what the biblical text shows? Well, then we may need to rethink conversion. Well, thanks for clicking on this episode just a few seconds ago. This is Greg Hall, and I'm glad you've joined me for a little while while we consider or possibly reconsider what the Bible says about a person's conversion to Christianity. For the past few episodes, I've been walking through what I'm calling the Rethinking Projects. We started with Rethinking Rest in episode 36, then Rethinking Eden in episode 37, and then we just finished a three-episode series on the Rethinking Babel Project. These Rethinking Projects, well, they're my attempts at organizing the random thoughts that I've had over the last couple of decades. And this will be a brief introduction today to the Rethinking Conversion Project. This project follows a line of thought that began way back in my master's program. I was reading a book that discussed the transitional nature of the Gospels between the Old and the New Covenants. And it was then, for the first time, that I began reading the Gospels from the perspective of the Old Testament saints. This group of people that had come to a saving faith through God's revelation in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. And it's this group of believers, the Old Testament saints that were alive in the first century, that are mostly ignored in our modern conversations. Theologians often don't consider them saved. Preachers don't mention them in their sermons. And the average Bible reader has not been taught to identify the clues, the ones that the authors of the text have included to help us identify this unique group of people. So theologically speaking, this situation had never existed before that time in the first century, and it will never exist again. When Jesus arrived in the flesh, it created a theological threshold. Jesus opened a door through which all believers would need to pass. But because of the logistics of their day, the way the good news spread throughout the first century, there was a huge delayed reaction to the news of the Christ. And in the first century, before Jesus was born, there were people that believed in the one true God. And through their devout faith, they had a relationship with God. They believed God's promise of a Messiah, that he would come and save humanity. In modern terms, we would say that these people were saved. And if they were to die, they would have gone to be with God for eternity. So the question that no one is asking is this. What happened to all those people, those Old Testament saints, once Jesus was born? What happened to their faith? Did it go away? Did they have to start over with a brand new faith? When the Messiah actually showed up, were the Old Testament saints back on neutral ground, theologically speaking? Well, today we'll talk about the fact that we have failed in our modern day context to give these folks a proper category. Because we want to read the scriptures and have them apply immediately to our time and to our culture. And for that reason, we have failed to read the scriptures to consider this unique band of believers. 
It's the only group of believers that the world has ever known that first believed in the promise of a Messiah for initial salvation, and then were introduced to the Messiah. And these folks would have been everywhere in the first century. They would have been in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in Galilee of the Gentiles. But let's not stop there. Old Testament saints in the first century would have been spread throughout the world. In fact, the good news of the Messiah's arrival and his ministry would need to spread throughout the known world, not only for evangelistic purposes to create new converts, but the news would need to spread to let all those who were already saved and give them the news of Jesus, his arrival, his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. Would it surprise you that a large portion of the New Testament describes and details the transition of these Old Testament saints from faith in a promised Messiah to faith in Jesus, the Messiah. That was a perspective shift for me that I can only describe as revolutionary. And those of you familiar with past episodes of the podcast, you'll recognize the sound of this because I've talked about it a lot, especially through the book of John. It's the main focus of episodes 3, 4, 5, 8, 11, and 15. And I'm sure I mentioned it in a lot of other episodes along the way. So if today's introduction to the Rethinking Conversion Project intrigues you at all, you can go back and listen to some of those past episodes. So before we dive into the biblical text and look at people's conversions in that context, let's spend a little more time just discussing how conversion has been defined in our modern culture. If I was to ask you, what does it look like when someone comes to faith in Christ? What does it look like when someone gets saved? Well, there's going to be a lot of different answers. Many of you might talk about sharing the Romans road with somebody. It's a series of scriptures from the book of Romans that some use for evangelizing new converts. Maybe uh, taking someone to church, that would be a part of the process, and having them maybe respond to a sermon that was given. Maybe walking down to an altar in the front of the sanctuary, or responding to a message at a retreat or a summer camp. Maybe that is what salvation or getting saved looks like. You might describe it as a personal decision that people decide to believe. I have decided to follow Jesus, as the song says. You might say that conversion hasn't really happened until someone says a prayer and that you have to say that prayer out loud, like maybe some version of the sinner's prayer. And as we discussed in the last episode, there are some that might even say that there should be some other external evidence of that conversion, like maybe speaking in tongues. Well, all of those descriptions would be culturally accurate for how some of us have defined conversion in our day and in our culture. And you may be very comfortable with part or maybe all of what I just said, but it probably shouldn't be a surprise if I told you that you wouldn't be able to find any of those descriptions in the Bible for people coming to an initial faith in Jesus. So I'm becoming a C.S. Lewis fan. My sister, Jody, she was a big fan of Lewis. And when she passed, I inherited a big stack 
of Lewis books from her library. And so recently I read through the entire Chronicles of Narnia. I previously had only read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in my youth. So that was really fun to read through the whole series finally. And honestly, that series becomes more brilliant as the reader ages. There are so many different levels to the characters in those stories that reflect bigger theological thoughts. I've also read Lewis's autobiography called Surprised by Joy, and it's in that book where Lewis describes the movements he experienced from atheist to agnostic to a theist and eventually to a believer in Jesus as the Son of God. It was a process that happened over a period of years for Lewis, and he had people discussing faith with him along the way. He had friends like J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit. He would discuss faith with Lewis on a regular basis. And it's in the second to last paragraph of that book, Surprised by Joy, where Lewis describes his ultimate step of faith. Lewis says it this way, and I quote, Of one thing I'm sure, as I drew near to the conclusion, I felt the resistance almost as strong as my previous resistance to theism. As strong, but shorter lived. For I understood it better. Lewis says, Every step I had taken from the absolute to spirit and from spirit to God had been a step toward the more concrete, the more intimate, the more compulsive. At each step, one had less chance to call one's soul one's own. To accept the incarnation was a further step in the same direction. It brings God nearer or near in a new way. And this, I found, was something I had not wanted. And regarding that moment, that moment of converting for Lewis, he says this, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. He describes being driven to a new zoo that was opening up one sunny morning. He says, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like When a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Lewis describes that at the maximum points in life, a person is what he does. There is nothing of him left over or outside of the act of what he does. As for what we commonly call will, someone's will, and what we commonly call emotion, he says, I fancy these usually talk too loud protest too much to be quite believed. And we have a secret suspicion that the great passion or the iron resolution is partly a put-up job. So that from Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis in his own words describing his point of conversion, the method and the process that he went through, which he didn't mention here, but he mentions in other places, is that his ride to the zoo was in the sidecar of a motorcycle. He literally put his helmet on at point A, got in the sidecar, didn't talk to anybody during the trip to the zoo. And he says, all I can say is that when I started the trip, I did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And when I arrived, I did believe. And there wasn't even a whole lot of thought in the process. So now I realize that the process that C.S. Lewis experienced might not be exactly how everyone comes to faith. But it is interesting to me 
the lack of what we may have come to expect at a conversion. The process for Lewis didn't happen at a weekend retreat or an outreach event. There was no altar call. There was no sinner's prayer and likely no speaking at all, let alone in a foreign tongue. Lewis describes it only as an awareness that he came to. He became aware that he believed. There was no act of the will, no great emotion involved. In fact, he suggests that emotion shouldn't even play a minor role in such an important event. And it makes me wonder why emotion so often plays a major role in our modern conversion scenes. And why it is that we push so hard for a response at an altar or at the conclusion of a talk. Well, this seems like maybe a good time to wander back to Scripture and begin to rethink what we think we already know about conversion. So most people believe, because we're taught to think this way, that the people in the Gospels who respond favorably to Jesus, that they're experiencing an initial faith conversion. We are told that's what's happening. And with that logic, we often come to the conclusion that everyone who sees or hears about Jesus is an unbeliever, and that when they believe in Jesus, that is the beginning of their faith journey. Well, unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. Before Jesus was born, there were thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands, actually probably millions of people alive on the earth that already believed in God, and they were already saved through faith. Now, just look at this for a minute. We like to think that the people we read about in the New Testament fit into one of two categories— Those who definitely don't believe in God, people like most of the religious leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the Levites, these are the people that Jesus himself called hypocrites and a brood of vipers. They are the offspring of the serpent in Eden. And that's one category, those who are opposed to God. But the only other category we've created is the one that everyone else fits into, And I'll call them neutral unbelievers. They aren't opposed to God, and they are ready to receive the good news about Jesus and experience initial faith in him. And if this is the case, that would be their first experience of true saving faith. Those are our categories, those opposed to God and those neutral to God. But everyone is an unbeliever because no one as of yet has believed in Jesus. And this makes sense in our modern setting, too, because the only way to heaven today is through faith in Jesus. He said it himself. He is the only way to the Father. Well, the problem is that wasn't the case before Jesus was born. It also wasn't the case during the 30-some-odd years when Jesus was living. And it wasn't the case for a period of time after his death, burial, and resurrection. During the first century, there was a whole generation of people who got saved through their faith in the Old Testament revelations of God. And these people, already a part of God's family, would then hear about Jesus. Some of them would actually meet him. And those already in the family would recognize him for who he is and believe in him. 
But their faith in Jesus was an extension of an already existing faith. It wasn't a new faith. These folks were already a part of God's family. So to put this into modern-day theological terms, when an Old Testament saint believed in Jesus, it was a step of sanctification. It was a continuation, a maturing, if you will, of an existing faith. That's what we call a step of sanctification in theological circles today, when we become more like Christ in our thoughts and actions. And in a strange sense, that's exactly what was happening to Old Testament saints that came to believe in Jesus. They began their journey to think and behave more like him. And by the way, this is probably the main reason why the temple wasn't destroyed right away after the resurrection. You may not have the timeline all squared out in your head, but the temple remained in place and functioning until 70 AD. It was about 40 more years, about one generation. And you might ask, why? Well, at least one of the reasons has to be because not all of these Old Testament saints had heard about Jesus yet. They were still operating in an old paradigm. They hadn't had the chance to upgrade and agree to the new terms of service, the new covenant. And while it seems to us like all of that should have happened just at a blink of an eye, Resurrection Sunday, everybody's on a new page, the reality of the day was that it took a whole generation. And it's during that generation that some of those Old Testament saints would have died without ever hearing about Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but there were people every day dying in faith of the promise of a Messiah. And yet Jesus had already come, done his work, and ascended into heaven. And as we walk through the New Testament, these people are all over the place. If you've read the Bible at all, you already know their stories. You've already read about them believing in Jesus. You've just put them into a different category. These people are not being added to the kingdom, as many of us suppose, but these people are just being introduced to their Messiah, the one in which they already believe, the one they were expecting, the one they were looking for. So let's dive into the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament a little bit and reintroduce you to some Old Testament saints that meet their Messiah. And you might ask, how will we recognize these folks? Well, I'm going to suggest there's two main clues that the authors of the biblical text have given us. First, it's the descriptions of the people themselves. The authors of the biblical text have given us descriptions that if we read them with this perspective in mind, it's going to be pretty clear what they're trying to convey. These are Old Testament saints. And we will pay close attention to how people are described. That's first. Second, we will notice and pay attention to what these particular characters say and how they respond to the message and person of Jesus. I mean, it would make sense that if somebody was already attached to God in faith, that when God actually showed up in human form with skin on, he would sound familiar to true believers. He would be easily recognizable to true believers. These are the people that would come to faith 
quickly, they would not be opposed to him. Now, with that said, they may be thoroughly confused about why he's there and what he's about to accomplish. That's true. We see that with the disciples trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, misunderstandings about his purpose and his actions. But when he speaks and when he teaches, you would expect, if they're true believers already, for them to have a pretty quick response. So where should we start? Well, let's get into the Gospels and let's go to the advent of Jesus, his birth. We spent several episodes of the podcast over the holiday season, right before Christmas, on this advent. So let's talk about Elizabeth and Zacharias first. These are the parents of John the Baptist. John the Baptist obviously is the one that is preceding Jesus in his public ministry, introducing Jesus to many Old Testament saints. And before John's even conceived, you've got his parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias, in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. And Luke describes the parents this way, and I quote, They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So there's a couple things going on here. Number one, I told you we're going to pay real close attention to the description given to characters, and it would be hard to conclude any other way than these folks are people of faith. I mean, it says right there, both were righteous in the sight of God. There's only one way that people become righteous in the sight of God, and it's through those people's faith in God's righteousness. We saw it in Abraham. He was justified by his faith. And these folks are described by Luke, the author, before anything happens, before an angel shows up, before a vision happens, before anybody's impregnated. Luke is describing these parents as both being righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. And there's a second thing going on with this description in the second half. They had no child, Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, those of you familiar with your biblical story, just go back into the Old Testament and the book of Genesis, and this describes many of the couples that God worked with. Most notably, Abraham and his wife, who are both advanced in years, she was not getting pregnant, and they had no children. So the author here, Luke, doesn't just describe them. He actually links them through this description of their circumstances back to other faithful couples in the Old Testament. That's how we're supposed to be seeing these people. And to come to a conclusion that these two people are spiritually neutral, unbelievers, but open to God, I think we've just plugged them into the wrong category. Later in Luke 1.67, the father, Zacharias, it says, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. I'm going to go way out on a limb here and just suggest to you that Elizabeth and Zacharias were Old Testament saints, that they had an existing, vibrant faith that was salvific. They had already been saved through faith in God's promise. And likely, they were looking forward to a Messiah. And lo and behold, they had no idea they were going to be this involved with the story. And can we maybe just assume that Jesus's parents may have already been believers before Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit? I mean, that would just make sense, wouldn't it? So Joseph is described this way in Matthew 1.19. He was a righteous man who did not want to disgrace his wife who had just shown up as pregnant. 
Not only was he righteous, but he was then visited by an angel via a dream. He understood the message as truth, and he followed the directions. And what about Mary? Luke chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 describes Mary as a favored one and one who had the Lord with her. And she had previously found favor with God before this whole episode happened. That was before the angel even showed up. So in the biblical story, with these four adults, the way the authors have decided to describe them would lend us to believe that these are people of faith at the beginning of the story, before anything happens. These are not people that come to an initial faith. That's already happened. So everything that we see, they're giving up their lives for the use of God with through their children, through their ministry. That's all a maturing of the faith that already exists. And there are some other minor characters that show up in the birth narrative that are possible Old Testament saints. I'm going to direct you to Luke chapter 2, verse 21. It's there where we have the story of Jesus' circumcision at the temple in Jerusalem. And in verse 25 specifically, we are introduced to a man named Simeon. And he is described this way. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In other words, the Messiah. And when this guy got to hold the baby Jesus in his hands, he said, for my eyes have seen your salvation. We are supposed to see Simeon as an Old Testament saint that was looking for the consolation of Israel. What does that even mean? The consolation of Israel is a title for the Messiah. He is looking for the solution that God will send, that God promised in the Old Testament, a Messiah character. And when he laid eyes on him, he knew exactly what he was looking at. And just a few verses later, in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, we're introduced to a lady by the name of Anna. It describes her as a prophetess. She never left the temple and served day and night with fastings and prayers. And she recognized the baby Jesus right away as the Messiah as well. And not only did she recognize him, but the text says that she spoke of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's a group of people that Anna knows who are waiting and looking for the Messiah. When she comes across him and recognizes him, she goes to all the people looking as well describes what she's seen. And that's really an important description that maybe you've passed over. There was a large contingency of people who were looking for the Messiah character that was promised in the Old Testament. And who are these people looking for the Messiah? It's not that hard. These folks are Old Testament saints. They're already saved by faith. So that's a good start. And we've looked at some pretty likely characters, Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zachariah, Simeon, Anna. Those are all pretty easy, okay? But what about the unlikely characters in the birth narrative? What about the Magi, those wise men who visit Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 2? Were they looking for the Messiah? Well, I talked about these folks in more detail in episode 31, but just consider how far they traveled to not just acknowledge the king of the Jews, but the text says that they came to worship him. And that can be read one of two ways. They could be worshiping him from a secular standpoint, the way other national leaders were worshiped. That's a possibility. 
But given the detail that I talked about in episode 31, where these people would have been descendants of a group of magi, of which earlier would have been led by Daniel, how Daniel would have shared the prophecy and the timing for this character, and how this group of magi, having traveled that far, it would suggest that these men already had a faith that drove their extraordinary actions. And in contrast, they went and ended up in Jerusalem and talked to the Jewish leadership there. Remember the ones that gave the Magi the directions to Bethlehem? It's that leadership, the Jewish leadership, that were unwilling to travel the 9.5 kilometers to check out the king. Now, that's a response that you would expect from people that don't believe, to not be willing to travel that very short distance, to not be looking and expecting a Messiah, to have your only concern be that there might be a rival being born to your throne. So the Magi, I've got to believe that they had some sort of a faith that drew them to the birth of Jesus. And when they arrived, they worshiped him. Back in episode three, I talked about John's presentation of the first disciples. And before they became disciples of Jesus, they were disciples of John the Baptist. And when one of those men, Andrew, met Jesus, the text says this, he found his brother Simon, who's Peter, and Andrew said to him, we have found the Messiah, (laughs) which suggests that they're looking for the Messiah. These people are not spiritually neutral. Those who are looking for the Messiah, they have a faith that causes and drives that search. And if we allow ourselves to read the text, looking for the clues that the biblical authors are giving us, these Old Testament saints become not only apparent, but they are surprisingly prevalent. It's possible that the majority of people that meet Jesus and immediately follow him already had a saving faith before they met him. There are likely people. There are unlikely people. People that we have possibly already shoved into categories that prevent us from seeing these folks for who they really were. And John gives us three such encounters right in a row in chapters three and four. First, there's Nicodemus. He's an unlikely believer who represents a largely unbelieving group of Pharisees. And then the woman at the well in Samaria, who, despite obvious theological handicaps, she tells Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Then it's that woman that introduces Jesus to others from her city who are also looking for the Christ. So unlikely that we would be expecting true believers in Samaria. But I believe that's what the text is actually showing us. That's the way we should be reading it. I spent some time detailing more about Nicodemus and the woman at the well in the previous episodes that I mentioned. When we see these people for who they are, believers who meet their Messiah, the tenor of the whole New Testament changes. We begin to see the ministry of Jesus differently. It allows us to understand his ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not as an evangelistic endeavor, but rather a ministry to reveal himself to the vast collection of Old Testament saints, those looking for a good shepherd, because the shepherds in the first century temple ministry were a hypocritical brood of vipers. In that way, Old Testament saints in the first century were sheep being supervised by hired hands that didn't care about their spiritual safety. 
And we can also read the book of Acts differently. It becomes the story of Jesus' disciples gathering the larger crowd of Old Testament saints beginning in Israel and then spreading the search outside of the land. So, for instance, it's more plausible that the 3,000 souls who received Peter's words on the day of Pentecost, it's more probable that those were Old Testament saints who had already faithfully gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. So that's why I'm really excited to walk through the book of Acts. We'll be reading it from a perspective you may have never considered before. It's going to be a lot of fun. When we see the New Testament in this light, considering this group of people, these Old Testament saints, the whole book becomes less evangelistic, the way we would define evangelism. And that may seem a bit heretical to some of you. We have been so programmed to read everyone is coming to an initial faith when they receive the truth of who Jesus is. But if that's not really what's happening, it's important to see it for what it is. And then ask the important question, what does that mean for today? How could this perspective change our modern practices and understanding of conversion? Well, (laughs) that's all I got for today, but I am really excited to head into the book of Acts and walk you through what I think the text is trying to communicate to us. It's going to be quite a ride. So between this episode and the next, be sure to make your way to the website at rethinkingscripture.com and let me know you're listening. I got a message just this morning from James in Clarksville, Tennessee, and I love putting names to the locations that show up on the All America Listener Challenge map. For those of you that have made it all the way to the end, thanks again for listening, and please take some time to rate, review, and don't forget, recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Mm-hmm.